Welcome to Screens of the Stone Age, the podcast where scientists review movies about prehistoric people or prehistoric life. What do we review movies about? This one's not very much about people, is it? There's some uh, people in it, but yeah, yeah, life. They're a plot point for sure. My name is Josh Lindell. I'm uh, working on my PhD studying Neanderthal teeth, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Dr. Lee. Dr. Lee, God. <sighs> I'm Dr. Kimberly Pomp. I am a bioarchaeologist, biological anthropologist who specializes in human skeletal variation and health and disease. I'm Dr. Ross Barnett. Uh, I've got a background in the studying of ancient DNA from Pleistocene life. And I'm Dr. Advait Zucker. I'm a postdoc at Yale and a vertebrate paleontologist, and I study the ecology and evolution of mammal and the megafaunal extinction. You jumped the gun there. I was going to say we have our first guest on the podcast ever. We're really happy to have you here. So um, we always start off with a summary of the movie that we're reviewing. Today we're reviewing the movie Ice Age from 2002. Is that right? Yep. Uh, Advite, as our guest, would you like to have the honor of summarizing uh, this movie for us? Sure. So it's a, it's a journey of... Um, for mammals in the ice age of somewhere on, on the planet, it's, it's unclear where they are, uh, but it's a mammoth, a sloth, and a saber-toothed cat carrying a juvenile human uh, back to its tribe, and it's the journey and, and all the challenges that they face along the way. Uh, it's a good, succinct summary. I think that's much more succinct than when uh, Ross summarizes uh, <laughs> and goes off on a lot of tangents. Yeah. <laughs> So as usual, uh, I would like to start off with uh, pointing out all the really pedantic mistakes. And I just need to get some really, really pedantic things off my chest before we can get into this movie, okay? <laughs> so Scrat, this little rodent, is carrying an acorn all throughout the movie, but there are no oak trees in the entire movie. Almost every tree is a spruce or a fir, and there's um, a, a grove of poplar at some point. I didn't see an oak tree. Um, so you're not going to want to watch the Scrat in Space one then? I don't think I don't think I'm going to watch any of the other ones. This is probably a good one. I think they're all right? fabulous. I love them all. Yeah. Uh, at some point, they're walking through an ice cave and they find a frozen dinosaur. But of course, there's sixty million, more than sixty million years between the extinction of the dinosaurs and the beginning of the Ice Age. So that's Im implausible. Um, at some point, they're walking on the ice and a volcano is about to erupt and. Uh, Sid is complaining that his feet are getting hot, but he's clearly still walking on snow. And so if his feet were getting hot, that snow should have been melting before he was able to feel the heat beneath his feet. That's not how physics works. And um, I want to I want to screen share an image here. So Manny the Mammoth has an entire set of human teeth behind his tusks, which really distracted me when I saw this. And I think that if the internet can go crazy over uh, Sonic the Hedgehog's human-like teeth enough that they have to change the entire movie, I think that we should go back and change the entire movie to fix Manny's teeth as well, because that was really distracting once I noticed that. Are you guys seeing the... Oh, God, yeah, that's, that's, that's terrible. Oh, wow. <laughs> Such a minor detail, though. That's off my chest. Those are the worst things that were totally they ruined the entire movie for me and i hated it <laughs> wow. well, i'm gonna have to jump i'm gonna have to jump in there with those are strong words josh no not really uh 
That's 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 the whole reason I wanted to do the podcast was so that I could just complain about these things. I think you've missed the the worst one. I, I can live with all of those. I mean, the yeah, it, you know, the, yes, there's a T Rex in the ice cave, but there's also aliens. So I mean, I think it's all right. We we can live we can live with that. Um, the bit that kind of freak that I objected to the most strongly um, was none of those. I mean, I, I legitimately love Ice Age. I think it's a great film. Only the first one. The other ones aren't great, but the first one is brilliant. Um, apart from and my major issue is this one scene, which is the dodos, because they they just up until then they're kind of been fairly consistent. I mean, I've been saying we don't really know where it is, but we can guess that it's somewhere in North America because they've got uh, sloths and they've got uh, what what seems to be Smilodon as a saber tooth, and then you see Glyptodonts and other kind of endemic North American or at least America wide. Uh, species at, at various points although they, they screw up the timelines a bit and you've got things like Merotherium and other kind of non-pleistocene animals there anyway we'll we'll give them some leeway for that but the dodos i mean they just they did them wrong i mean dodos are only found in mauritius they not found anywhere else and they made them out to be idiots whereas actually dodos were lovely peaceful giant pigeons that did no, nothing to anybody until people turned up and you know ate them and killed them so it could, that the only bit that really pissed me off just because it could have it try, tried to make out that I they knew were stupid you were going around on this because <laughs> <laughs> it made out that they were stupid uh, and therefore it was their own fault that that they went extinct and that's really not a helpful uh, attitude and i can't let them get away with that so that that's my one rant about ice age everything else i love but just not the dodo that is the um that it is the like image that they have though outside of people who understand what happened is that you know like dumb as a dodo even though what it really is is that they didn't have any um natural predators so they didn't weren't instinctually fearful of humans yeah but yeah. i enjoyed it when they were like when they all went down off the cliff and then they're like oh there goes our last female <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> I, I, even those jokes don't don't exculpate it i don't think i i, I still can't they don't do it no, but that was the only major one. I think what I liked about it was that it's one of the first films to actually show mammals instead of dinosaurs. And as as a you know lover of mammals, it was just great to see these animals on the screen. Um, what annoyed me was that off the incredible menagerie that you have in the late Pleistocene, they picked animals that just weren't there, and they didn't pick one particular place. So the the the, the the glyptodonts, which we're talking about, that's actually Dodecurus, which is a South American form. And they have macrochinids, which are also South American notoungulates, in proximity to the ice sheet. The sloth and the mammoth and the saber-toothed cat are North American, which is fine. But And they have a brontothere, which went extinct at the end of the Eocene, about 33 million years ago. The Merotherium lived at... Uh, thir- 37 million years or something like that in in or actually 27 million years ago in north africa there's just all kinds of 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 anachronistic elements in this film when they could have picked all kinds of cool animals you could have if if they wanted to be north america specific you can put a longhorn bison there you can put put some some lions in there lots of species of ground sloth there's musk ox there's pronghorn antelope but no we had to pick like weird uh, 
paleogene animals. Or if they wanted to have rhinos, we have rhinos in the Ice Age. You just have to <laughs> shift it to Asia and put, uh, and put the wolf of rhinos in there. For those of us who study humans and not mammals, my problem is I was going through this movie trying to figure out what all the animals were and realizing that my knowledge is mostly from my picture books and all the taxonomy has changed since I learned all these things as a kid. So we have our uh, three main characters, uh, Manny the Mammoth, as we know from uh, the Iceman movie, the genus and species name is Mammoth Mastodonis, right, Ross? <laughs> don't don't start me, Josh. Just don't. <laughs> uh, there's all the about... primogenius. Is that what if, we have? He, I'm guessing. I mean, he's he's probably. It's not going to be a Colombian mammoth, which is the other North American species you have, because it's um, all evidence suggests that the Colombian mammoth wasn't very hairy, um, whereas Manny is very hairy. So yeah, we'll go for Mammothus primogenius for for Manny, a woolly mammoth. And then we have uh, Diego the saber tooth, which is it a Smilodon? Is that uh, what it what it should be? It's Smilodon fatalis. Yeah, he's got the typical kind of long, non serrated, uh, dirk like teeth of of Smilodon, rather than the other um, late Pleistocene saber tooth, which is different different form of teeth. And then Sid the sloth. The only ground sloth I'm familiar with is uh, Megatherium, but he's not a Megatherium, right? No. No. So I, it, it's most likely a megalonyx because megalonyx has been found all the way up into Alaska. And so if they're close to the ice sheet, I think those are the sloths that you're most likely to find. I always pictured Pleistocene sloths being huge. Is that not all of them? Uh, no. So the things like megatherium and erymotherium, those are elephant sized sloths. But the other ones like Megalonyx or Paramylodon or Nothotheriops, which are found in the continental uh, uh, part of, of, the, of, of the U.S., they're about the size of, you know, from a cow to a black bear. That's the mm-hmm. size of variation for these slots. So, so they weren't all massive, but they're bigger than modern tree slots. Right. And bigger than Sid then. Yes. Well, it's, it's kind of about Megalonyx size. I think he's about the right size for for megalonics but i mean there's also because it's such a huge variation there's also like the small caribbean the sort of uh dwarfed giant sloth kind yeah. of parochness and megalochness and and all these other kind of island forms as well so yeah mm. there's there's like a huge variation mm. from the, the the super giants down to not much bigger than than modern sloths i couldn't decide whether i found it annoying or enjoyable that when they had the female sloths in the hot tub was said that they had to have like protruded chests to look like um, fancy bathing suits with big breasts. I was like, I don't know if that annoys me or if I like it. I can't, I can't decide. I don't know where the mammaries are on sloths. Oh, I think humans are the only ones that have breasts, right? Well, elephants as well have, have them axillary and so do um, sea cows and, uh, and dugongs. Oh. Um, yeah. Top fact there. But I don't know. Um, yeah, I bet you know where where slots have their memories for for realistic realism sakes. Do we know? Right, they are on their ventral surface, so they are on their chest. Okay. Do they have two, or do they have multiple? Uh, they have at least two. I can't. Yeah, I'm not sure if they have more than that, but they have at least two, which is sort of the default. But they had condition. like patterns in their fur <laughs> that made it look like they're wearing like '50s bathing suits, which was kind of enjoyable. <laughs> like Marilyn Monroe style. 
It struck me as I was watching this that we have not a lot of females. Like we have an entire uh, group of cats with no females. Yeah. And um, I realized this is our fifth episode. And if we look back on all the movies we've reviewed so far, not a single one of them passes the Bechdel test. So I don't know if that's something that we need to be commenting on on our podcast, but not a lot of good representation in this movie for, for women. No, not until the second one. All the women are either the sloths who are sex objects or the mother whose only job is to care for a baby until she dies. Mm-hmm. And I think there were some old lady uh, glyptodons who were just mm. sort of gossiping. And that's what all the women do in this movie. Though I think in the later ones, which there, there's a female mammoth, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, in the later ones. But I've not seen And that. a daughter. And a female saber tooth too, possibly? From Eventually. A different species. I think that's like yeah. the fourth. Uh, so uh, back to the animals. Uh, early in the movie, there's a migration scene. Uh, seems like there's about four or five taxa that are just sort of migrating as a single herd. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the glyptodons. Did we say what uh, species that was? Yeah, it's probably a, a kind of glyptodon called Didacurus because they have a spiked tail. The ones which you get in North America are, are from the genus Glyptotherium. Those are the little ankylosaur-looking ones? Uh, yeah, yeah, these so- are the ones that look like a turtle dinosaur. And they're closely related to um, armadillos, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then we have um, these long-necked, long-nosed things. These are, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what is it? starts with an L? No, it's a macrochemia. Lytopterin, so yeah. It's a notoungulate, or if you go by the most recent ancient DNA work on that, they're... Pan parasodactyls. I hate that term, but taxonomy. <laughs> but they're really cool. I mean, ma- macrochinids. Um, yeah, they're just the, the, the last great unknowns of um, mammal kind of phylogenetics. I think um, late surviving, so they survive right up till the end of the Pleistocene. Um, there's evidence that they were kind of hunted by people. They're found sort of down in South America. Mm-hmm. Have really weird skulls with like this nasal apertures right on the top like some kind of like a whale almost and so that's why they've sometimes been reconstructed with a trunk um, a brachiosaur yeah just like brachiosaurs exactly cool. um but yeah there's there's a, a reasonable amount of discussion in the paleo art circles about whether they have a trunk or not and i think the, the most people sort of think that they don't um have a trunk um but they still have very weird placement of the nostrils yeah I think they probably had some sort of a saiga-like large uh, nose, uh, but there, there, there is no typical morphological characteristic for a trunk. So most animals with trunks have their nasal bones pushed all the way back, and they've got this big cavity between their nasal bone and their and their maxilla, which is where the trunk forms. Uh, but macrochinids have a solid skull just with their their nostrils perched high up. There are there are lots of animals with weird noses because there's also something that looks like a tapir, and then there's something smaller with a sort of long snoot. So, um, is the tapir just supposed to be a modern tapir, or is it some sort of ancestor? And what is this other thing? It's not a tapir. It's a it's a it's a proboscidean. It's actually a, a relative of elephants called Mirotherium. So these were fairly early elephants which evolved in North Africa uh, in the Oligocene about 27 million years ago or so. Uh, the other thing, I think, is just a giant anteater. Hmm. I was looking at the credits uh, to see what these uh, animals were, and they have 
they call them, there's the glyptos, there's something that they call starts, I think. And then there was one that just said freaky mammals. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> it's so impressive that you guys know all these species. As an anthropologist, I don't, I, I only have to know a handful. <laughs> <laughs> well, more all the time. I mean, there's just been papers out today with two new additions that you've got to I know. add into the lectures. I know. Exciting. Uh, and so there's at least one more major animal here, which was the rhinos, which I think you already mentioned. They're not rhinos at all. They're a uh, brontotherium. Is that still the correct name or has that name changed? The name's changed. So there's actually two of them. And the one with the, the flat horn-like structure, that's an animal called embolotherium, which was found in Mongolia. And the other one with sort of the bifurcated horn, that thing is now called megacerops. It did not have a horn at the top of its skull, like it's portrayed in the in the film. I thought that was weird too. Yeah, and 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 these these horns are are not like rhino horns. They're actually just bone, uh, which is which was probably covered by skin, kind of like a giraffe's ossicones. And these are also from the uh, Eocene, right? They're, yeah, they're much older. They lived around thirty three million years ago. Oh, so this movie's all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, in general, I think it's safe to say it's supposed to be in North America, right? I mean, but there's a volcano there, so I don't... There's volcanoes in North America. There? Are there? Yeah. Yeah. St. Helens. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> the one that I live near and could destroy me, yes. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you take that part out, please, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> it would be funnier if we keep it in, though. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually simple to tell where this is set because you've got this this mix of South American late Pleistocene mammals and North American late Pleistocene mammals, and they and a lot of them didn't have overlapping ranges. It's very hard to figure out where they actually are. Mm. Probably, I think most of them are at least North or South America, and then we have you said one from Africa, the Proboscidean, and then one from Asia, the Brontotherium. And then the dodos, of course, from Mauritius. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it, uh, I think most of them are North or South American, so like Western Hemisphere. <laughs> um, at some at some point, they don't um, explicitly state, but they walk past a geyser, which uh, they describe as being faithful. So it's mm-hmm. clearly hinting at old faithful. Mm-hmm. But they also walk past a megalithic structure, which is probably clearly supposed to be Stonehenge as well. Uh, so that's a little difficult to reconcile. <laughs> and then, of course, Stonehenge is only like 5,000 years old, but this yeah. movie is definitely older than that. Yeah. Um, do we have any idea of what exact time period we're looking at? It's the Ice Age, but that goes from two and a half million up until like 12,000 years ago. So can we narrow that down? Well, if well, it's... I think the human species to me look like Neanderthals. Well, I, I kind of Not assumed that they were, they were modern humans coming in uh, like into North America, that these were, uh, you know, the, the kind of pre-Clovis folk coming in 15K into North America um, with their dogs which is another uh, species that, that's that's there. I think they're just kind of really robust. Yeah, so that's the thing is dogs were domesticated probably about fifteen to 10,000 years ago. Maybe. I mean, I guess it depends who you speak to. But that was my takeaway was it's just about 15K in, in North America. I mean, it could be. 
they could be trying to do modern humans, but I mean, it's quite a prominent brow ridge even on the females in it, and there's no frontal, like there's no forehead. Mm. Which they do have chins, though. I think, modern don't humans, they? do they? I shouldn't have. I should have paid attention to that. Let me look. To me, they look like Neanderthals. Humans are the only ones with the forehead. I thought that the the main father character did look quite a bit like a Neanderthal, but I thought all the rest of the humans looked uh, oh, they less do have robust chins, yeah. than him. I felt like they made them pretty ambiguous in a stylized way, and I kind of liked that because you you can't you know pin it to any specific group of people, which was kind of nice, I think. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know what anybody would have looked like fifteen thousand years ago. No, but Ross is right; they do have chins, and chins are uniquely modern human. Um, but we're supposed to also have a forehead, and that idea of going back from the brow is um, Neanderthalish. So. Also, I don't think that sloths have their eyeballs on the side of their head like a <laughs> like a hammerhead shark. So we can probably just chalk it up to artistic license at any point where we're, you know, not certain about something. True. Uh, at the end of the movie, in the possibly post credit scene, uh, Scrat washes up in an ice cube on a tropical island, and it says twenty thousand years later. So I didn't know if that was meant to be our time, implying that the movie is set twenty ago or if it was just a random number that they chose i mean that's hard to say because he does go into space later so it doesn't <laughs> who knows he's my least favorite of all of the characters scrat uh, people seem to love him but he just i find him really annoying. yeah i love scrat i like him in shorts not in like full length things maybe because he's not even a real mammal is he not so no they actually did find squirrels as far as did, did they find something that looked like scrat well, it's a Triassic mammaliform, so it's not really even a true mammal. And it's, uh, you know, 200 and something odd million years old. And it came after the movie, and they were like, look, like thing. But it has the fangs? It's not fangs. So I wonder what made them come up with Scrat and gave him fangs. Like, did they just decide that they need a little, little squirrel? Uh, yeah, I guess. Everything back then had And then just teeth. to make him look... Make them look ice agey. Um, another wrinkle in figuring out where this is set is that towards the end of the movie, they're in a cave where they're looking at some cave paintings, and they're, uh, I think, clearly designed after the uh, Upper Paleolithic European cave paintings from like Lascaux or Chauvet, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I don't know that much about paintings in North America, but um, I think. I think the style was definitely uh, modeled after Upper Paleolithic European style paintings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they did good. And I I enjoyed how they showed the hunting of the mammoths. Well, well it was sad when Manny re- was remembering losing his family. But how they cornered the mom and the baby in the cliff and then threw the rocks on it. That's pretty um, accurate. And probably how they would have done it. I'm guessing it would be difficult to pierce the skin of a mammal with a spear enough to really kill it. You'd have to do it multiple times, right? That's re- it's not that hard. No. Um, there's lots. There's like definitely quite a few uh, mammoth bones that have been, even the bones themselves have been speared through, um, and you know ribs and shoulder blades that have flint debris embedded in it from from spears, um, either thrown by hand or with an atlatl. So yeah, these these guys were were. Um, super proficient at hunting mammoths is it just one or though or is there multiple ones because i've always pictured it like that we gang up on them yeah 
No, there's uh, multiples. Like there's um, the Yana RHS site in Siberia has uh, multiple scapula that have um, flint bits embedded in it and like pelvises and other bone sites that have clearly been kind of crunched through by a spear. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really like that mm-hmm. little section. Well, with Neanderthal. The, I was just going to say, I really like the section with the uh, the cave drawings. I thought it was really nicely done. I told a little story and, and gave a little background yeah. to, to, to Manny. Um, and yeah, definitely it looks like it's kind of modeled on, on Chauvet and, and those other kind of French sites, but that the having lots of kind of human images, that's not upper Paleolithic at all. I mean, that's more Neolithic. That's the only time you start to see lots of human images in, in kind of cave art is even later than, than that only kind of five or six or 7,000 years ago. Um, but yeah, they had to do that to tell the story uh, and the, and I thought it was nice. Yeah. Well, the, the oldest cave painting is 64,000 years old, made by Neanderthal. But that, I don't, that didn't have humans in it. It was just animals. Um, but there's Neanderthal, a paleopathological analysis of Neanderthal skeletons show that they have similar trauma patterns as rodeo clowns and stuff. So they're thinking that they had close um, proximity to large mammals. So they were saying that that might have been them gaining up on lar- large mammals like mammoths. So getting close with their spears to stab them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't see that same pattern in modern humans. So I think it's interesting how they almost showed that difference in hunting strategies in the cave painting scene. I always cite that paper as much as I can. It's a fun <laughs> paper. I know, it is fun. But uh, that's Neanderthals. These, If these are modern humans in the Americas, they should have atlatls or some sort of better projectiles. Well, I mean, that's what I've seen is that the, the difference is that they were using um, the landscapes of the cliff and the rocks. Mm-hmm. And there's in Alberta, there's quite pop famous, um, this would be quite a bit later. So they were hunting bison, but they would corral them into this cliff area and then have them either run off the cliff. And I think it's Buffalo Jump Point. Mm-hmm. So modern humans i think adapted they changed it so they weren't unlike neanderthals they weren't necessarily getting up close to the large mammals but they were using the landscape or or throwing projectiles Mm -hmm. Uh, so how much do you guys think this movie is sort of about the relationship of between humans and animals or between humans and nature because the the original conflict of the movie is that the uh Smilodons want to kidnap the human baby as revenge because the humans have been killing them, mm-hmm. which I don't fully understand because they think the baby drowned in the river and yet they have to go check, track down this baby like the baby's dead. Isn't that the point? Like you, you really just need to eat the baby out of revenge. <laughs> I just felt, felt kind of weird that they had to go through so much trouble. But uh, I guess the, the point is that they they wanted revenge because the humans were kind of the bad guys who had been killing the saber cats right and then manny the humans had killed his family but instead of revenge he decided forgiveness so i don't know the theme is there's a lot of themes going on because then there's diego learning about friendship and what love means right well, it is a kid's movie so I, that's probably the main theme it's probably not that deep yeah and and sid finding acceptance even being strange I love the Ice Age movies. I watched all of them. My whole family watches them we, quite routinely, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and is the first one definitely the best? Because that's my impression. The first one is the 
best, but the other ones are enjoyable as well, but more in just a funny cartoon way. Okay. It it definitely doesn't get more accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say the theme of of incorporating all kinds of random Cenozoic mammals continues throughout the films. They have a Gigantopithecus in in one of them <laughs> as well, which was just strange. Yeah. Well, in another one they find that there's this secret world where dinosaurs are still alive underneath yeah. the ground. It's the tropical paradise with dinosaurs still there. I haven't seen any but the first. Do they uh, depict this Gigantopithecus bipedal like uh, Bigfoot? Yep. Oh, that's that's it. I love Bigfoot. I, I want to do a whole bunch of Bigfoot movies if we can do that at some point on this show, if we can figure out how to fit it in. I'm sure we can. But uh, yeah, that to me still more plausible than the dinosaurs or the... Uh, Eocene or Miocene mammals. At least Gigantopithecus was a Pleistocene mammal. Mm -hmm. For the listeners, Gigantopithecus is a giant ape. Yep, it was probably like a giant orangutan. Mm -hmm. What did you like about it, Ross? Um, I, I, I guess the, I liked uh, just this kind of the kids' themes, like just you know everyone kind of getting together and overcoming their differences. You know, a sloth can be friends with a mammoth. And a saber tooth, um, and I, I like Diego. Obviously, he was he was pretty cool, um, and yeah, just yeah, the the whole kind of the baby was super cute as well. Um, I don't think he ever gets a name, but he's he's really cute. Yeah. And I just like the way it kind of, for the most part, um, you know, did try to do to show a kind of re semi realistic world apart from the dodos and and the uh, the few other instances. Um, which was kind of semi-realistic, and yeah, if you, you kind of ignore the the talking animals for a bit, then it was it was quite a nice bit of world building they did. And uh, yeah, how can you not love a film that's got gi giant sloths? <laughs> that's true. They make a comment though at kind of near the end when he says Diego says, "Oh, don't bother," because Sid's trying to talk to the humans, and Diego says, "Oh, don't bother, Sid. You know, everybody knows humans can't talk." <laughs> so it's almost like there's this idea that there's this animal language that we don't understand yeah. so it's us that's that can't talk did your daughters like it uh yes no they they love or did you just make them the whole way through <laughs> yeah they, they didn't Pause have a choice them all the inaccuracies they did, yeah didn't have a choice yeah. but i remember <laughs> when it came out i saw it in the, in the cinema and, and thought it was great then so when i was in my early 20s and uh i bought it as a christmas present for my little sisters who are a lot younger than me uh, and they loved it too so i, I don't know anyone that doesn't like it um, yes, we can all find kind of problems with it, but I think mm -hmm. compared to some of the other films we've watched, um, it's it's up there with uh, Encino Man in terms of um, enjoyment, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know which one I would choose put over Encino Man. I could probably watch Ice Age more often. Yeah, oh, than definitely. Encino Ice Man, Age top but... and Encino Man second. Advite, have you seen Encino Man? A long time ago. And it's it, worth watching again. Yeah. I think that this is going to turn out to be the Praising Encino Man podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's our new kind of baseline standard. Maybe Polly Shore will join us one day as a guest. <laughs> I'm sure he's far too busy. Doing what? <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I was meaning. <laughs> Joshua, you were going to say something? I just, uh, since we have our guest here, I want to make sure I didn't miss any animals because uh, I I really like these Ice Age animals, but I uh, don't study them well enough. So I, I wanted to know if you had any other thoughts about something that we've missed here that 
you might have picked up on that I wouldn't have thought to to think about? Uh, they got the toes right, which I liked. So the the, the number of toes on these animals. It's, it's like a small nice. detail. But, uh, it was it was fairly accurate. Uh, the the macrochinids, for example, they had uh, three toes, which is which is what they have, and they had like a big padded foot, which we know from from trackways in in Patagonia. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, I just thought that it was it was great to see all of these animals on screen. I thought they could have put more in there, like horses, because horses were some of the most common Ice Age animals in North America, and so were bison, but there, mm. there weren't uh, any of those. So in, in any of these giant herds of animals moving across the landscapes, you would have had a bison and a horse, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also got the mammoth pretty well, because uh, elephant societies are matriarchal and the males kind of get kicked out, so it wasn't surprising that there was just a lone male mammoth doing its own thing. Hmm. That's good to know. Yeah. And, there, and there's also some evidence that the mammoths did undergo some form of migration as well, I think. I seem to remember reading a paper where they, they looked at yeah. isotope ratios in tusks uh, and were able to show uh, geographical differences between different time periods in the tusks that had been laid down. Yeah. Cool. The whether those migrations would have been undertaken with uh, giant sloths and uh, saber-toothed cats is a, is a different question. Yeah. It's actually unclear. What I've always wondered... Well, no, I was going to say that it's actually unclear if slots migrated or not. We know that they're fairly good at dispersing because you've got these Pan-American ground slots. What's neat about them in South America, at least, is that they may have dug these giant burrows in in cliff sides. And there are all these you know, giant holes oh, in cool. South America with scratch marks on them. And the only thing big enough to, to do it is, is a giant ground slot. Cool. I would love to see one of those. You should check out the pictures. They're really cool. Yeah, I will. Um, one thing I was going to say is, and this never really comes up in really any of the movies, is I wonder what, because there's this assumption that once Diego finds his family and discovers what true friendship is, what it means to be a pack, that he go, he must turn vegetarian. But what does he eat? What, how does he survive? Because it's just, they just never bring it up. They never show him eating. It's just never, or does he sneak away and eat innocent animals? He'd have to. I, I thought about that too. I, I realized the movie only takes place over like 24 hours or a little more, right? They, they say early on there's a very strict timeline. So it's possible that they just didn't eat for, for the entire movie. But yeah, if they stay together, he's going to have to start eating at some point. <laughs> there's no such thing as a vegan cat. So uh, he's going to have to. No, but that, I mean, that's someone. what Madagascar did, right? Is that was a theme is his, is the lion having to deal with being a, the lion and the zebra being best friends and having to deal with the fact that one's a carnivore and one is food. Yeah. One of the things uh, that we could mention for context about the mix of North and South American animals is that throughout most of the Cenozoic, North and South America were separated. And at the beginning of the Pliocene, uh, they uh, collided and connected through Central America. And... Um, is it called the the Great American Interchange, where South American mammals migrate into North America and North American mammals mig- migrate into South America? Uh, so I, I'm familiar with the concept, but I'm not familiar enough with uh, exactly which mammals would have been found where afterwards. I know that uh, the South American mammals didn't fare as well after all of that, because most of these weird ones we see, like the... Uh, 
the long-nosed, long-necked ones are basically extinct with no descendants today, right? Yeah, so Gabby seems to have, so it's called the Great American Biotic Interchange and goes on for quite a bit of time. Uh, the early Pliocene, so between about 5 million and 2.5 million years ago, it seems like there were island hopping mammals. You've got ground slots which are, which are going up into Central America from there. Um, the, the real pulses of, of the inter- interchange starts when the Isthmus of Panama properly forms at the beginning of the Pleistocene. That's actually what kickstarts the glacial interglacial cycles because your ocean currents change. You, you now no longer have water going from the Atlantic to the Pacific through there. Um, but animals like the glyptodons, the giant ground, ground slots, they disperse up into North America. And North American animals like camels, uh, cats, dogs, deer, elephants, they come down into South America. Uh, there, there seems to be um, uh, a disproportionate amount of North American taxa in South America which survive. But most of the, of the South American taxa don't make it. Hmm. And it, it might be because the ones which are going down are more open habitat specialists, at least the ones from North America. We know that the, that the forest-dwelling taxa make it, but uh, all of the open habitat specialists in South America don't fare so well once these North, North American animals come down. But there are actually in, in, interchanges going on across the Bering Land Bridge at the same time. So with the Pleistocene glacial interglacial cycles, you've got changes in sea level, and a land bridge starts to form between Eurasia and North America. And so a lot of animals from, from Eurasia then come in. So classic North American animals like bison are actually uh, immigrants from Eurasia. Same thing with the mammoths, uh, brown bear, wolves, moose, elk. They all come in from, 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 from across. And humans. And Ross, uh, does Homo do it as well? Or, or uh, that's a really good question. The other way. Well, I don't think we don't know yet. Um, it, there's not really any evidence. So we know that there's a homotherium in uh, kind of northern Alaska Yukon region. We know there's homotherium in Eurasia. And we know there's homotherium in kind of the southern United States and sort of the, the kind of contiguous 48. Um, but how those three different groups are related to each other is not quite clear. Um, and so whether what those connections are, we just don't know, I think, at the minute. Um, we do know for some other taxes, so like for there's lions. No DNA. Yeah, from, from DNA. So for lions, there's there's um, a separate form of lion found in the contiguous 48 states, um, for, which is distinct from the lions that you find in the Yukon and Alaska. So um, sort of during the height of the Ice Age, you have these enormous glaciers over most of Canada. And so you have to kind of think of uh, what is today Alaska and the Yukon joined to uh, sort of northeastern Siberia through the, the the kind of Bering Land Bridge. That's essentially the the uh, northeasternmost part of Eurasia, and it's a Eurasian fauna that they have there. So the lions that you find in Pleistocene, Yukon, and Alaska are actually closely related to the ones you find in in Britain and uh, and Germany and uh, and places like that, and very distinct from the ones you find south of the ice. So it's a really interesting question, I think. Um, what the homotherium that's in uh, kind of Yukon, Alaska area, the saber-toothed cat that's there, is it more closely related to the ones found south of the ice or the ones found over in Europe? And we just don't know yet. Hmm. Um, what about um, 
the relationship between llamas and camels. Am I correct in my understanding that these evolved first in South America and then after, no, they evolve so the the llamas change the, the llama camels evolve in Asia and then and then migrate into South America. No, so camels actually evolve in North America. So camels are like a native North American taxon. They evolve your um your, you know, true camels, things like Camelus, which is the the, the the genus for the modern day dromedary and Bactrian camel, that evolves in North America and then and disperses out. Uh, I think, or 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 an ancestor of that evolves here and then disperses out across the Bering Land Bridge into Eurasia. Llamas also evolve in North America and then they move south, and um, then they diversify into the I think two species, or I guess the two wild species in South America. It's always interesting to think about, uh, you know. Camels are so obviously Asian and llamas are so obviously South American and none of them live in North America, but they originated there. It's it's crazy how much these distributions change over relatively short periods of time. Fascinating. Relatively short being millions of years, I guess, in this case, but on a geological scale. Well, I mean, there was camels in North America until, until 15,000 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my, my uh, thought on that would be it's amazing how how things change when humans turn up. But, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Wasn't horses, weren't they North American and then died out and then got reintroduced yeah. into North America? Yeah. The did they, I forget now, did, they died out because of us, though, too, right? Yes. So they were here, we killed them off, and then we brought them in again. Oh, humans. Yeah, no, it, it, it's quite a remarkable pattern that we see around the world that these, these extinctions all take place after we show up. Um, and the extinction magnitude tends to be mm -hmm. more severe in places where we're the only species of human. It tends to be less severe in parts of South Asia and Africa where there have been multiple species coexisting with the fauna. Hmm. It, it's an interesting uh, problem to try and solve. There's a lot of controversy about whether it was humans or it was environmental change. I think the issues are with people who think that humans have to go, have to have gone and killed every last individual, um, and those of us who are like, well, you don't actually have to kill every last individual. These are very large species which are bad at reproducing, so the populations don't uh, bounce back, and they're already yeah. struck with the climate you disturb change. Disturb the equilibrium. Yeah. And you just have to kill off enough babies so that the fertility rate drops from two to one point nine, and then your population will eventually just go to extinction. It doesn't take a lot. No. Yeah, which could have happened with the Neanderthals too, because um, they died. Well, we we lasted with them for probably about 30,000 years, and then they died out. And there's some suggestion that humans, that we killed them. Um, but then the argument against that is that there's no mass graves or, or signs of warfare or anything like that. But if it, if, you, if it was the same type of idea where you just, you know, make it harder for them to reproduce enough to keep their populations up. Yeah, my problem with the lack of bodies is evidence against humans causing the extinction is that fossilization is not the norm. Fossilization is an aberration of life. What the norm is is for animals to decay and go back into the earth. So think about it this way. What are the odds that an animal ends up in the fossil record? They're pretty low. What are the odds that an animal that was killed by humans ends up in the fossil record? Even lower. What are the odds that an animal that was killed by humans, which preserves evidence of, of butchering or, or, a, or a cut mark, 
actually preserves. That's even lower. And but but the thing is, we have lots of evidence of this. We have lots of kill sites, and so a seemingly rare event uh, in the fossil record measured over a long enough period of time becomes actually quite frequent. Um, and so because we have all of this evidence, this goes to show that it was going on way more often than the than the fossil record is actually showing us. Yeah, good yeah, point. Definitely. I just think we need to reframe how we think about this problem. You know, instead of going with these unicausal mechanisms for the extinction, we should probably ask if humans weren't around, would you see the same pattern and magnitude of the extinction? And so far, there's nothing which suggests that we would get the same magnitude or the pattern. Mm-hmm. I think, Ross, your book, The Missing Links, um, outlines that pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally on, on the same page as, as I've been. It's, um, it, it, seemed, it definitely seems to me that although there, there can be a climate component, um, and I, I wouldn't argue against that, it seems to be uh, minor at best. And a lot of people that are arguing for or arguing against a, a human um, input into the extinctions don't have a good grounding in the ecology of extinction and how, how easy it is for it to happen and how it doesn't take you know, like mass overkill it just takes a little bit. It's it's an attritional um, thing. Mm-hmm. It just takes a little bit, again and again, uh, for them to slip into an extinction vortex. Uh, and you know, if anything, the past five hundred years have shown us, from the dodos to you know the thylacine, how easy it is for it to happen. Um, and it would be be nuts for us to turn up mm-hmm. in a new place and for it not to happen. I mean, that's always been my kind of argument. I mean, how how can we not have a, a kind of megafaunal omnivore turn up in a new place and not have massive effects on the on the ecosystems that are there already we're also a, a very strange predator because in in normal ecosystems things like cats are actually fairly rare uh in relation to the big herbivores out there humans reproduce fairly fast and we we tend to have larger populations than i guess lions or tigers or any of these other predators so we, we, we seem to be doing something very different from what you know wolves or the big cats are, are doing in the ecosystem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when when the kind of prey species run out for for big cats or for large canids, then the the predator population dies out. But when when our kind of preferred protein source starts to get low, then we just switch to something else, or we switch to more vegetable and kind of tubers and and other alternative forms. And I mean, that's possibly what's so so devastating about our impact is that in in kind of more natural, um, balanced ecosystems, there's the the kind of push and pull of predator and prey, and that just we, we're completely decoupled from that because we can switch to alternative food sources with no problems at all and still keep up the pressure on the original um, prey items that we're that we're hunting. Humans also, I mean, I don't know very much about this subject, but humans also we seem to have a tendency to. Once we like something or enjoy doing something, we do it to the extreme. So it's the same with the dodo, right? You know, they were easy to catch and tasted good. So we just wiped them out very quickly. And then the North American bison, I mean, there would be, even in the um, 20th century, just, you know, the people would just take trains and shoot them from the train and there'd be piles of bison. So it, mm-hmm. how how ingrained do you think that is in human ha- behavior and how different is that from other um, predators? You know, to do something not just to take what you need to survive, but to just do it to such an extreme. Well, I mean, I, I would say that yeah, definitely culture has a, has a big uh, impact. Um, so, I mean, with, with the dodos, it wasn't 
the kind of contemporary accounts suggest that they didn't actually taste all that good. It's just these these guys were, were hungry from long voyages. Um, but it's not just the kind of direct hunting as well. You know, the, the sailors mm. that arrived on Mauritius were releasing pigs onto the island, which had never been there before as a, as a kind of new food source because they knew that the pigs would go off, look after themselves, multiply. And next time they came back, they could have bacon instead of disgusting dodo. Um, they released like monkeys and uh, mongooses and all mm. these other kind of things. So, I mean, it's not just humans. We, ha- we have all sorts of other kind of hangers on as well that, that cause uh, devastation too. Um, but definitely, you know, the idea that there's there's a kind of cultural thing as well. We know that humans had a big kind of cultural affinity for mammoths. There's so much art of them that it, it can't have been any other way. And so the idea that these were a special animal that that that, um, that were kind of maybe hunted because they were special as well, even when populations were low, you can Im- imagine that as a as a, a real scenario too. And they could become even more special if. If they became rarer too, I suppose. I mean, you just have to look today for you know, with rhinos and, and elephants, and and how their rarity increases their um, their kind of dollar cost in terms of like rhino horn or or, or uh, elephant ivory. Yeah, there's that. I just read a book called The Dragon Behind the Glass about the fishing fish, um, luxury industry. I guess so, owning the beautiful rare fishes, and how any time that species are listed on a protective list saying these are um, going extinct, don't get them, that that actually increases their value and puts them more at risk because then people go and take them more. It's quite sad. But yeah, I'm not sure that any other animal has that tendency. So it depends on whether that's a modern phenomenon that I that we have or if there's something in us that just makes us go overboard with everything. Well, I mean, it's also kind of like, you know, a, a fox in the hen house where, uh, you know, Overstimulus can can lead to to kind of want and slaughter, um, but you know, hen houses are such unnatural mm. um, things that you can kind of understand how how the fox would kind of just get so switched on that he doesn't stop killing all the hens. Um, but yeah, you'd hope that humans would know better, but we never mm-hmm. do. Oh, we don't. We still don't. Yeah. So speaking of that, one of the uh, topics that oftentimes comes up when we think about the Ice Age is rewilding and bringing the, the mammoths back. And, and I've got strong opinions on why we should not bring a mammoth back. But Ross, since you work on ancient DNA, what are your thoughts on rewilding? Or I guess rewilding and de-extinction. Yeah. I'm all for rewilding, but de-extinction, not so much. Yeah, I mean, I have strong opinions too. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why I wrote uh, the book. That I wrote. So yeah, definitely I'm for rewilding, 100% for reintroductions. Um, rewilding, uh, if it's well planned out and has been, um, you know, tested to make sure that there's not going to be any adverse effects. I mean, rewilding is essentially, or rewilding with with uh, analog species, shall we say. So instead of like introducing, I don't know. Um, one species of giant tortoise where the original giant tortoise has gone extinct. You want to make sure that you're not just introducing a, a pest, like an invasive animal, like it's happened in lots of places, like with rabbits in Australia or, you know, foxes in New Zealand, things like that. So you, you've got to do it right. If you're going to do rewilding reintroduction, I think should be fairly straightforward and should go ahead whenever it can. Um, but for de-extinction, yeah, I'm not a fan. Um, obviously Beth Shapiro was my PhD supervisor and she's written a whole book about, why it's not a good idea uh, how to clone a mammoth, um, but and I'm, I agree with her. I think um, 
the, the real lesson we learn from extinction is to to avoid it and not repeat it. And that even if the technology becomes available, which it isn't at the minute, but if it does become available, um, where we can resurrect um, extinct species, then we shouldn't because um, the world that they lived in isn't here. And for instance, with the mammoth, you know, where would we put them? They'd end up in zoos, just like to for people to gawp at, and and that's not really that's not really anything to be celebrated. I would say. No, definitely. And what we're going to get is is not even going to be a, a mammoth. You know, elephants are these highly social animals, and they they learn from their from their uh, herd. And you're basically going to get a hairy Alphas maximus, half mammothus primogenus. If we're going to go that route. Who's not going to know what it's like to be a mammoth or an Asian elephant? So it's just going to be a fairly confused mammophant yeah. out there in a zoo. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, but you know, like bring the bison back in Europe. Uh, get horses back if you can. There, there are lots of species that are now in these very isolated populations, and with captive breeding programs and with proper re- uh, rewilding initiatives, we can we can start to in- introduce them into forests where they once lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like we need to definitely, better. yeah, bring back the large predators. Like they had that in um, Yosemite, where they reintroduced wolves, and the eco- ecosystem just flourished as soon as they did that. Because um, it brings the equilibrium back into a natural status, right? Yeah, and even we see it in in, in Scotland, where we just recently uh, reintroduced beavers. I mean, they're, they're having huge positive effects on uh, on rivers and streams um, where they've come back, in, uh, increasing biodiversity and uh, preventing downstream flooding. Um, so, yeah, definitely all for that. Do we have any final comments about it? About Ice Age? I love it. Yeah, I, I think you guys too. watch the other movies. Yeah, it's, it's a fun <laughs> film. Heartwarming story about friendship between animals and how humans destroy everything. <laughs> Which seems Definitely. to be a theme in all the movies we've talked about, that humans humans are the jerks. That's true. It's always about being uh, self-reflective and uh, evaluating ourselves through the eyes of our own past. Deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Advite, do you want to share any social media or uh web page or anything like that yeah or you can have my uh twitter it's at a-m-j-u-k-a-r and that's i guess the best way to find me uh i've got a, a website as well uh i need to, to remember what the website's called i think it's about zucker at weebly.com uh but if you google me you should be able mm, to find i've been me. there it's it's really nice thanks thanks a lot for uh being our first guest Advite. I, uh, I was really excited to talk to both you and Ross about all these animals because every other movie's been about uh, humans so far. Yeah, I, I love talking about uh, big extinct mammals, so happy to come on and talk about them anytime. Yeah, well, we, you should be a reoccurring guest. Cool. Thanks to David Bach for designing our cover art. You can see more of his work at dkbach.com. Screens of the Stone Age is supported by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Find out what Canadian paleoanthropologists are working on at pasc-scpa.ca.